Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach on my lonesome today, but fear not because we have a brilliant guest to make up for that fact. I am joined by Nick Hyam, a journalist who spent 30 years at the BBC hosting Meet the Author on the BBC News Channel, amongst other things. And he's the author of The Mercenary River. I'm not going to give you any spoilers about what we're looking at today. I'm going to leave you guessing. And on that tantalising note, Nick, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start then with a really basic question. What made you want to essentially write the history of a river and water supply? Because it's not what most people necessarily think of when they think of book topics. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. Um, I live in North London. And close to where I live is the former course of something called the New River, which is not a river and it's not new. It's a man-made aqueduct, which was uh, created to bring fresh water to the city of London from Hertfordshire, more than 20 miles away. And it's not new because it's more than 400 years old. It was completed in 1613. And remarkably, it is still part of London's modern water supply. Uh, uh, about 10% of London's drinking water comes down the, the New River every day. And I, as I say, I live near the what used to be the root of this. These days it stops a little way north of my home, but it used to run all the way down to into Islington, to Clerkenwell. And you can still see these tantalising traces of it. In my local park, there is a sort of dog leg of open water. And you think, what, what's that doing? It looks like a sort of bit of canal just sitting there. There's a street with a very, very wide grass and tree-lined uh, strip down the middle of it. And you think, well, why is that there? There's um, a, a, a long linear park called, and this is a clue, New River Walk, which runs down through Islington. And I, I just got curious. I thought, what is this thing? And 
I went down whatever the water equivalent of a rabbit hole is because you, uh, as, as, as soon as I started delving into it, discovering more about the, the guy who created it, about the company which, which operated it, I've, I've, I was led into this extraordinary world. We take water supply completely for granted. I mean, the very term water supply, it sounds so boring. Uh, and yet, Water is absolutely essential, especially for, for, for big cities. And getting water to a big city is a very complex political, technological, financial, social enterprise. It, it, it's, it's really not easy. And looking at the sort of 500-year history of London's water supply, you find you come across all these fascinating things that you didn't know, uh, and you can trace the development of, amongst other things, the history of personal hygiene, the history of the, the, the business corporation. Uh, you know, it just It opens up so many uh, avenues of research and, and interest. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to write a book about it, haven't I? It did occur to me as you were saying it that the uh, equivalent, the water equivalent of a rabbit hole might actually be a man-made sewer. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we may just decide to move rapidly on from that point. <laughs> well, we might go down the sewers a bit later. You never know. So it's not a river and it's not new. <laughs> which is a bit of a, a, an interesting misnomer. So let's talk kind of early history. This thing is man-made. Whose decision was it to create this thing? Um, I, I guess it also kind of goes through phases as well, right? You know, there must be needs for, for upgrades and so on. So talk us through that very early development and its use in when it's kind of first stuck in. Well, medieval London, most people in medieval London got their water either from a, a well, a private well on their property, or from the River Thames, just stuck a bucket in, or from what were called conduits. And these were uh, pipes, um, some of them going right back to the sort of 13th, 14th century, which brought um, a limited amount of water in from springs. Uh, famously, there, there are some in what is now Oxford Street, um, uh, right by Bond Street tube station, to conduit houses, which were kind of public fountains in the middle of the city of London. And often the, the water from these was ferried around to private houses by, by water carriers, by people whose job it was to, to, to take water around to, to, to people's houses. Uh, and there was no concept of piped water to the home. And then uh, London started to grow. It had a population of about 50,000 in 1500. It had a population of 200,000 by 1600. And there simply wasn't enough water. So uh, 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 the, the city authorities sort of cast around for what to do. And two things happened, actually. The first was that a clever German uh, called Peter Moritz came to London uh, with a, a new pumping device and a new pumping mechanism that he'd invented. And he persuaded the city of London to let him rent the one of the arches of old London Bridge where he installed a water wheel. And the water wheel drove a pump which pumped water up. And Moritz had the clever idea of laying pipes under the streets uh, and selling a water service to householders. The pipes were made of wood. They were elm logs put together. And he made uh, a lot of money to begin with. And his successors carried on running this London Bridge Waterworks, pumping up water from underneath London Bridge and sending it round to houses right through until old London Bridge was demolished in, in uh, 1831. And so far as I can tell, 
Peter Moritz was the man who invented the public utility, the idea of supplying uh, something essential to paying customers. The New River took that idea and put it on steroids. Uh, and so the, the New River was originally conceived as a super conduit, far, far bigger, carrying far, far more water than these old medieval conduits. And it borrowed Peter Moritz's business model, laying these wooden pipes in the streets and selling a service. It was uh, the original idea was, it was uh, that of a man called Edmund Colthurst, who was a sort of military man. And, and he persuaded Queen Elizabeth, in her, literally in her dying days, to authorize the project. And when she died, he got her successor, James I. But he, I, he, something went wrong. I think probably just didn't have the money. So the real uh, originator, the real creator of the New River, was a fascinating man called Hugh Middleton, who was a Welshman. He was a goldsmith by trade, which really meant he was a sort of venture capitalist and, and a banker in early modern London. And he put up the money. And when uh, the project ran into political difficulties, he pulled off a sort of masterstroke by getting the king himself to invest, James I. So uh, at that point, I think the success of the venture was more or less guaranteed. If you're 50% of your shares are owned by the king, you're, 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 you're well in. And he completed this um, long aqueduct snaking across the countryside from uh, near the town of Ware in Hertfordshire in 1613, and he started the business. And the New River Company, which was incorporated, formally incorporated a few years later in 1619, survived right through until all the private water companies in London were nationalized, municipalized in 1904. And it was one of the very earliest modern business corporations. It was a joint stock company. So it had shares which were traded and, and sold. Um, it, it, it had permanent joint stock. Um, the idea of a sort of joint stock company wasn't entirely new. The East India Company existed and was a joint stock company. But the East India Company didn't have any permanent capital. People would invest in a voyage to the East Indies. And then at the end of the voyage, they'd all take their capital out again and they'd sell off the goods that they brought back. They make a huge great profit. Uh, the New River Company um, had permanent capital, uh, which, which was a new thing. And it was also, over its lifetime, probably the most profitable company in British history. Some clever fellow in the 1980s worked out that if one of the original shareholders in the New River Company had managed by some miracle to survive right through until 1904, uh, he, and they were all men, he would have enjoyed a return on his initial investment of 267% per year. I mean, I just, just jaw-dropping. It was, it was immensely wealthy, immensely successful. And not surprisingly, it spawned a lot of imitators who thought, gosh, there's money to be made in supplying water in London. We'll get into this too. Absolutely. Was there much of a reaction when somebody first turned around and said, we're going to sell you water? Because you were talking, talking earlier about, you know, for some people, particularly in the, in the medieval period, so, you know, trace that through to the early modern, where you have that crossover. Um, there is a river right there. And for people within certain parts of London with access to the river and the other waterways, obviously not in the, the waterways in a very different sense to how they are now. But if you were near water, you could just go and get it yourself. So the idea that I'm going to sell you something that you can go and get for free sometimes can rankle with 
people. So how do they how do they respond? Do you have sort of people saying, what next? You're going to charge us for breathing air? Do you get any kind of angry <laughs> dissent like that? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. And that, I think, was because the situation was um, uh, quite serious. The, there, there simply wasn't enough water to go around. And the water carriers, these chaps who used to queue up at the conduit houses and then hawk water around, they'd long ago established the principle that water was something that you could sell. Um, and it's only later, really, in the um, 19th century that people in London start saying, why are we paying through the nose for something that is absolutely essential to life? Uh, and the fact that water is in private commercial hands, the hands of companies like the New River and its imitators who were making a good deal of money out of it, that becomes a really major political issue in the 19th century. And actually the subtitle of my book is uh, Private Greed, Public Good, um, A History of London's Water, because it's that conflict which was set up um, in principle in the late uh, 16th, early 17th century. Uh, I mean, there were people actually questioned whether Hugh Middleton should be given a sort of contract to supply water and be allowed to charge for it. Um, and Middleton's answer to that, not unreasonably, well, I'm putting up the money. I've got to get it back somehow. You know, if you want the water, you can pay for it. Um, that conflict was all that tension was always potentially there. And it, it really came to the surface in the 19th century. And there were um, a, a sort of 70 year period in which the politics of London's water was extremely, extremely important, engaged national governments more than once and uh, uh, eventually resulted in what you could say was the first large-scale nationalisation of a public of a, of a private inter public enterprise in 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 UK history. Let's talk about the 18th century. We will get onto that conflict because it's a really interesting part of your book, and you know, there's there's almost this sense of some of the Londoners being held to ransom. Um, Very much in, so. in in this this discussion. So we'll we'll get there. Be patient, listeners. But before that, I want to talk to talk about the 18th century, because you describe this as, or at least London's water supply in the 18th century, as being the envy of Europe. How had we managed to get it sort of so right, if you will, and I sort of use inverted commas for that, when it came to water? This, I think, is the upside of the fact that it was supplied by private capital, by private companies. Um, in London, because they... Uh, companies who supplied the water needed to make money, they had to provide a reasonable service. And so the, 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 what was remarkable, unique almost about London, was the fact that uh, the water was piped to individual houses. Uh, that doesn't seem to have been the case in most other uh, European cities. Um, there were public water supplies. They were usually provided by the municipality. Uh, Paris had quite extensive ones, but they're, 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 they simply didn't provide as much water and as conveniently to um, uh, customers, particularly you know, reasonably affluent middle-class customers. The service for the poor is um, quite a different matter. And so European visitors would come and they'd be astonished. You know, every house had pipe water and they used to use the water. They, they clean, you know, they used it to clean the insides of their houses. They used it to cook. They did all sorts of things with it. And of course, they used it for, for the laundry, uh, which was tremendously important and huge user of, of, of water. And nowhere else in, in Europe had this. Now, that is, I think, 
because nowhere else in Europe had privatized its water in quite the same way as London had. In the long run, clearly, as we said, there were tensions involved in that. But in the 18th century, I think, um, London was this vigorous commercial um, center, the sort of most vigorous, most successful commercial uh, uh, hub city in the world. And this was one manifestation of that. We talk about pollution. I mean, we talked about how we might end up down the sewers. Uh, perhaps we've kind of got to that, that moment in the interview. Because, uh, I mean, for a time, the Thames is being treated as an open sewer. So there are big issues in terms of how people treat their water, water supplies and, and waterways. So how big are the sanitation issues and how integral, quite obviously, is this kind of this concept of the new river as a source of water in terms of trying to offset those sanitation issues? Well, the new river was always in the fortunate position of, of, of bringing down from Hertfordshire relatively clean water. All its imitators um, got their water from either the Thames or the River Lee. And they were never as profitable because the new river water just came down by gravity. Um, it, it just flowed down the river. All the other rivals had uh, to pump it out of the Thames, force it up uphill out of the river. And that's expensive. However you do it, whether you have horse-driven pumps, whether you have uh, water-driven pumps, whether you have uh, eventually in the 18th century steam-driven pumps, um, which and London was an important sort of test bed for steam pumping technology. Um, however you do it, it's going to cost you money. So they were never, never as profitable um, uh, uh, you can overstate how dirty the Thames was um, in the 18th century. Um, yes, obviously it was polluted, um, but people were happy to use the water. Very few people drank it neat, any water drank meat, because it tasted foul and it had bits in it. But most people would let it settle. Everybody, one thing that one must make clear is uh, the, the, the water was supplied to houses uh, in wooden pipes, but it wasn't, like today, supplied constantly. It was supplied intermittently. And the, the water companies would employ people called turncocks, and they would go around street by street on a regular schedule, and they would turn the water on in each street for a couple of hours, two or three days uh, a week. And the water would flow into individual customers' systems. Almost every house in London had a barrel or a lead tank somewhere, usually in the backyard or in the, um, uh, the basement kitchen, which would fill up with water, maybe a tap on the bottom of that, and you could take the water out, draw the water off in order to use it around the house. And you, you, you know, then you'd have to wait for another couple of days until the water came on next. And, and these systems were and tanks were really quite important because they helped to, I mean, the, 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 the nasties would float to the bottom. Uh, and so the water that you drew off was probably relatively clean. But at the end of the 18th century, some clever chap invented the flushing water closet. Up until that point, um, household waste, feces and so on had gone into a cesspit uh, in most places. And that cesspit periodically had to be cleared out. Men called gong farmers would go down into it and dig out the accumulated muck, which would then be taken out from the city and put on the fields of the market gardens around London to fertilise the vegetables. So metaphorically, Londoners were eating their own um, their own. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. 
Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, awful feces. Uh, and <laughs> their own excrement. And um, uh, uh, that worked fine uh, until the flushing water closet, because the amount of water in a flushing water closet simply overwhelmed cesspits. And all that water had to go somewhere. And so it went into the Thames, the nearest river. So suddenly the Thames becomes over, I say suddenly, I mean, it was over a period of about 25 years, suddenly becomes a huge cesspit. And the water is not only mucky and a bit smelly, it's really dangerous to health. Uh, they didn't realize this, but as we would now know, it's, it's really not something you ought to be drinking. And that, coupled with the amount of money that the um, uh, companies were making, prompted a kind of consumer pressure from all, 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 all quarters. And, and uh, eventually, in uh, 1852, the government was, was forced to act and ban the water companies from taking water out of the tidal Thames. And what then happened, which was full of sewage, what then happened was the tidal Thames continued to fall, uh, fill up with sewage. And notoriously, in 1858, one of the hottest summers on record, the uh, the great stink assailed London. The, the, the Thames stank so badly that they had to abandon sittings in the House of Commons. Everybody, everybody was sick and literally sick and bad. And uh, Parliament suddenly found the money to um, put to 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 finance a new and improved sewage system, which they've been talking about for for years, and nothing had happened. But now suddenly it happened, and famously, a man called. Uh, Joseph Bazalgette was uh, uh, given the job of designing uh, a system of sewers which would keep all this waste out of the Thames. And we still use um, Bazalgette sewers. Bazalgette, like Hugh Middleton, you know, created something which has has lasted, the, uh, stood the test of time. Absolutely. Um, an, an incredible piece of Victorian engineering by, by all accounts. Um, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can we move on to water wars? Because there's, I mean, spoiler alert for, for listeners, there is a section of your book that you title Water Wars. So talk us through how the friction 
emerges when it comes to water supply. You were talking about how um, sanitation is part of that issue and particularly um, the fact that a lot of these companies are drawing water from the Thames. So just talk us through where this, this conflict comes from. Uh, well, uh, during the 18th century, London uh, is continuing to expand and a number of new water companies start up um, imitating the new river, but as we established, not making as much money. And then at the very beginning of the first sort of 10 years of the 19th century, as London's growth uh, it rockets, it goes through the roof, um, the... Um, uh, a, a, a whole series of other new water companies start up to service areas uh, up to the west of London, growing South London, East London in particular. But they're not content because we're in the era here of Adam Smith and ideas about free markets and competition and so on. So they're not content just to serve one particular area of London. And that meant that they were going to lay their pipes down the same streets and they were going to uh, attempt to seduce long-standing customers, say, of the New River, uh, and they were going to make them offers they couldn't refuse. And there was this extraordinary period when in, in some parts of London, you had three different water companies all digging up the streets in, uh, and all trying to offer uh, the same or similar services to customers. Uh, customers were, were bribed. Uh, customers were changed over from one uh, company to another without realizing it, um, their, their pipes would be switched over. And they, they only, you know, they'd only realized this when the bill arrived from a, a different company. Um, and there were dirty tricks. The company's uh, workforces would um, uh, you know, deliberately damage the fitments that the, the lead pipes moving uh, going into rival customers' homes. And then they'd say something, like, oh, we'll fix it for you, love. Yeah, we'll fix it. But um, only if you switch over to our company. There were reports of rival gangs of workmen, you know, having fights in the streets uh, over who was going to lay the pipes. Uh, it was chaos. Uh, it was chaos. And what the companies quickly discovered, the newcomers, um, was that it was also ruinously expensive and no one was making any money. And if they carried on like that, they would have gone bust. And so they came to a series of what were initially secret agreements to carve the city up between them. And so with one significant exception, Londoners found that they, they'd gone back to a situation where they only had one water company serving them. Each company had a, a, a local monopoly. It was a, an oligopoly. It was a cartel, whatever you like. And of course, as soon as they, they'd done that, as soon as the companies had done that, they put their prices up by 10%, 25%. Um, and everybody was furious. And that, that is actually really what kick-started the agitation throughout the 19th century, outrage on the part of customers at the way they had been treated, the stupidity of the water companies. And the water companies um, found themselves from that moment on at the source of constant criticism. There were 17, I think, major public inquiries by parliamentary committees and royal commissions and so on into London's water supply in the 70-odd years from 1820-something to 1890-something, um, constantly worrying at this terrible the scandal and what to do about it. And of course, 19th century governments didn't like the idea of intervening. It was interfering in private. These were private companies, private property. And one of the things that governments didn't do was interfere in private property. Um, and so it was with the greatest reluctance that gradually these 
uh, talk, uh, governments of both political complexions um, were, were forced to acknowledge that maybe government did have a duty to step in here. And they were helped in this by an extraordinary man called Edwin Chadwick, who was the great sanitary campaigner of the time. Chadwick was a strange fellow, and some of his ideas were completely off the wall, and everybody hated him. But he was very effective. And one of the things he successfully did was persuade government, not only as regards water supply, but in all sorts of other areas, that it had a duty to its to its citizens, even if they weren't voters, of course, in many cases they weren't, the franchise was very narrow, that it was the job of government to, to protect, to, 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 to nurture society, public, 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 the public as a whole. And that, London's water, the rouse over London's water, helps to bring that change of attitude on the part of politicians and governments, help to bring it about. I love it. I love the just the 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 gall of all of that. Oh, we'll just we'll just casually uh, sabotage your water supply, and it's okay. We'll fix it for you, but you have to understand we're investing money into it, so you have to therefore join it. It's just scandalous. Um, it was absolutely appalling. You mentioned Chadwick and have him having some off the wall ideas. This is history hack. We can't let that go. You've got to tell us more about Chadwick. What were his kind of crazy notions well they the, the problem is they seem in some cases rather crazy to us now but to contemporaries they seem quite logical chadwick is is um notorious for his poor law reforms um the the, the system of dealing with people who'd fallen into poverty or, or, or were, were very old went back to um the time of elizabeth basically every parish in in uh, the country was uh, tasked with the business of looking after its local poor and in order to pay for that uh, to feed them or to house them or whatever um, the property owners in the parish paid a rate and they contributed a, a sum of money and this system by the time of the by the early 19th century industrialization the growth of big cities and so on had more or less completely broken down and was badly in need of reform nobody i think disputed that and chadwick sort of maneuvered himself into the position where he was able to come up with the reforms and what he did was he was a disciple of Jeremy Bentham the, and, and, and had briefly worked for Bentham, the, the utilitarian philosopher. Um, he decided that um, people should be encouraged to work, that um, being, as we would put it, on benefits was um, a sign that people weren't trying hard enough. And there was uh, really no reason why uh, honest uh, rate-paying citizens should be subsidizing the idle poor. And so he set up a system which made it as unpleasant as possible to seek uh, parish relief, charity from parish in particular. He set up those those workhouses, those, those which were made notorious by Dickens and others and campaigners. Um, and he deliberately set out to make life in the warehouse, uh, where, the warehouse, the workhouse, as unpleasant as possible in order to make it... You know, more agreeable uh, for people to get a job rather than to, which is fine. Um, a, if you're youngish and able-bodied, and B, if there are the jobs available. And of course, there weren't the jobs available. And of course, many of the people who were uh, claiming uh, relief were genuinely unable to work. They were too old, they were too ill, and. Um, uh, it rapidly became clear that this was a monstrous system, which Dickens and others uh, campaigned against. But it was Chadwick's idea. It seemed to him to be 
a rational utilitarian approach. Um, and hit the problem with, it, with his uh, interest in sanitation is he, he correctly uh, identified the, the fact that um, without a decent water supply and sanitation, um, you were likely to get um, outbreaks of disease and the slums and cities were terribly un un unhealthy. Um, what he didn't realize was that disease could actually be waterborne. Uh, he assumed, and he wasn't alone in this, this was the, the general view of the time, disease came in bad smells, uh, which is not such a stupid idea. You know, slums uh, smell horrible, they stink. People in slums die young, they get diseases. Is there a link? Um, and unfortunately, correlation doesn't mean causation. But uh, the assumption was that, that bad air, miasma, was the source of disease. And it took a long, long time for that idea to shift. And so Chadwick was quite ha happy to discharge um, waste into the, uh, the the Thames because he thought it was getting rid of it, clearing it away, um, and and preventing these terrible bad smells uh, uh, arising until that is obviously in um, the 1858 Great Stink, when the, the Thames itself became a source of appalling stench. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't until a marvellous man called John Snow, Dr. John Snow, um, uh, in the mid, in the 1850s, uh, that somebody finally clocked that at least some diseases, in Snow's case it was cholera, were waterborne, and that something needed to be done to clean up the water supply to prevent people dying of cholera. And Chadwick's interventions actually made matters worse. So going back to the water wars, we reach a point where Richmond ends up being completely deprived of water, right? So how, do, how does this situation get to the point where it's that bad? Well, the water wars were a, 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 a feature of the early part of the 19th century. The, the, this general arrangement, as they called it, between the water companies, which they called a truce and carved the city up between them, was arrived at um, uh, by about 1817, north of the river, and south of the river by about 18, 1843, I think. Um, Richmond happens later. That happens in the 1870s. And it's a consequence of the sort of residual greed of the water companies. Uh, one of the eight water companies, which between them had carved up London, it's called the Southwark and Vauxhall Waterworks. It was uh, the one notorious for having the dirtiest and most unpleasant water. It also um, uh, provided a service to Richmond, which at that stage was not part of Greater London. So it was outside of London, but, but Southwark and Vauxhall water was sold to the people of, of Richmond. And um, the good folk of Richmond decided that they were paying too much for it and that it would be cheaper for them to set up their own local waterworks, take water out of the Thames, distribute it to their, 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 their citizens. And the Southern Vauxhall saw this as a lot of business, which obviously it was. And they were particularly worried that as soon as people knew that the local authority in Richmond was proposing to start its own rival waterworks, they'd stop paying the Southern Vauxhall bill. Uh, they, 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 which is in fact what happened. Uh, the good folk of Richmond simply decided they weren't going to pay their Southwark and Vauxhall uh, water bills and the Southwark and Vauxhall was losing money. Um, and rather than trying to negotiate a solution to this, and I have to say neither side, the local authority of Richmond and the Southwark and Vauxhall both come out of this appallingly. Uh, the Southwark and Vauxhall just decided that it would stop supplying the water to Richmond. 
long before, weeks, months probably, before Richmond's own alternative waterworks was in a fit condition to start supplying. So you have up to perhaps 20,000 people living in and around Richmond um, who are sudden, who wake up one morning and have no water. Um, and they're not going to get water. In, uh, the last, the, 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 it, it took, in some cases, it took a full year from January 1877 to January 1878 to connect them up. So these were people who had no water for a year. They had to get water from the local authority sent sort of water carts around and, and, and stamp outs in the streets and so on. But it was, it was the clearest example that I could find, and I start the book with it, uh, the clearest example that I could find of the attitude of the shareholders and directors in the private water companies in London who said, this is our business, this, this, we own this, uh, we're in it to make money, and frankly, we don't, we're not interested in what the customers think so long as they go on paying their bills, and if they don't pay their bills, well, tough, we'll cut them off. And absolutely no concept of public service. And it was... Uh, uh, one of the reasons, I mean, not, it's not directly, Richmond was not directly one of the reasons, but that attitude, which was widely shared among the water companies, was one of the reasons why government was forced to intervene. And uh, government made two big interventions in the 19th century. One in 1852, it said to all the water companies, you're no longer allowed to take water out of the tidal Thames. If you want to get water out of the Thames, you've got to move upriver from uh, Teddington Lock because the water out there is relatively clean and fresh. And the tidal Thames is just full of sewage flowing backwards and forwards every day. So we can't have that. And the other intervention was in 1871, when there was another piece of legislation, which created, amongst other things, um, the first water regulators. I mean, we have water regulators today um, of greater or lesser efficiency, but the 1871 Act um, uh, uh, created a, a, a post of um, water examiner, someone who was there to look, out, look after the quality questions. And a government auditor who's to look into the books uh, to make sure that the companies weren't ripping the customers off, and also um, that the companies weren't ripping their own shareholders off because the boards of directors were quite capable of doing that, as, for instance, the, the, uh, the story of the railways in the middle part of the 19th century demonstrates. There were an awful lot of company fraudsters of one sort or another in the 19th century, uh, and um, government finally acknowledged that... Um, there was a, a role here for an auditor to make sure that um, everything was clean and above board. You've given us some teasers there about how, you know, we move towards the, the modern style of supplying water. And we won't say any more about that because we want people to go and buy the book. And the so last chap the last chapter, I, which deals with the state of affairs today, I would, I would, uh, I, I was quite impassioned writing that. Uh, I do feel that there is an appalling scandal at the moment. We'll, uh, we'll leave that as a little hook for people. Folks, go buy the book. You're going to have a rant incoming about where you can go and buy that and why you shouldn't go to Amazon imminently. But before we get to that, I want to talk about putting this together because it's, a really, it's, it's not like you can just kind of pick up some set works on this and start to piece together a, a story. This is quite an unusual kind of, Anglin Avenue on history. So 
how did you go about piecing together all the evidence for this? Uh, well, there, there are obviously books, um, but some aspects of this, um, people have written about it. Um, nobody has written a kind of big overarching history of this. So that, that is my claim being first. The other thing is that there are a lot of primary sources. Um, uh, I um, grew very fond of um, something called the Journal of Gaslighting, Water Supply and Sanitary Reform, which whose dense, densely printed columns look terribly intimidating, but actually um, deliver up some wonderful gems. The Richmond story was one of them. I found that in the pages of the, the, the Journal of Gaslighting. And that was published uh, as a sort of trade paper for the gas and water industries from the 1850s onwards. Um, and that is in the archive of always complete run of that, the archive at a what marvellous place called the London Museum of Water and Steam, which is in Kew Bridge, and which is an old pumping station belonging to one of the 19th century companies. It's got working steam engines. They, they, they um, steam them from time to time. Um, it's a great place, absolutely fascinating. But the real gold mine is at the London Metropolitan Archives, which as it happens, are just across the road from New River Head, where the New River eventually uh, originally terminated. Uh, and to get to uh, London Metropolitan Archives from where I live takes about 40 minutes walking along the course of the New River. Couldn't be more appropriate. When the companies were municipalized, nationalized in 1904, and something called the Metropolitan Water Board took over, uh, all their corporate records were taken over by the Metropolitan Water Board. Metropolitan Water Board in turn was privatized and became eventually Thames Water in the 1980s. Thames Water didn't want all this stuff. So it looked around for a suitable repository. The London Metropolitan Archive said, yes, we'll have it. And it's, I mean, there is a lifetime of, uh, I mean, if, if there's a young PhD student looking for a, a topic, they, they've got a complete career mapped out in front of them. It, it's absolutely fascinating. All of the companies, uh, their correspondence, their, the minutes of their board meetings, all the maps and plans, all the uh, engineering drawings, um, uh, the, the dealings with the public. I, I, I mean, I, I, I was deep, deep in the London Metropolitan Archives, and I would have remained there. I'd still be there if it hadn't been for COVID and lockdown at which point the archives closed and the libraries closed. And I had all this research and I thought, God, what am I going to do? Well, I thought, um, I, I, you know, I, there's still lots I don't know, but I probably know enough to write a book. So I wrote a book. Fantastic. Can I ask about the future um, of water supply as opposed to sort of the present? Because we all know about hosepipe bans and issues of water and sewage companies sometimes using some some pretty poor things, uh, poor practices when it comes to disposal of wastewater and the wastage of water. So setting aside the present, what do you think the future is likely to hold? Are the stories of your book destined to become a thing of the past? Or actually, as pressures on water supply grow, do you think that there are going to be different issues that, that are going to come to the fore? History will repeat itself um, with modifications, um, and in fact, the fact, the very fact that we are now back in a, a world in which the water is privately owned um, means that, there, that that we're replaying some of these arguments and uh, debates that um, took place in the in the nineteenth century. And add to that the fact that certainly in the southeast of England, London and the southeast, there is with climate change, with things like um, uh, the, the concreting over of the landscape, which means that 
less of the water that falls as rain gets absorbed by the ground and into the aquifers and the chalk hills, more and more of it runs off. We are looking at a water shortage. I mean, not as dramatic as in places like Cape Town and Los Angeles, where there, there is a real crisis looming. And I have absolutely no idea how those places are going to cope. And it's, uh, I'm thinking of writing about that in my next book. Um, I think there is a real, real global issue there. But here in the Southeast, we don't have enough water. So the water companies are trying to get us to uh, consume less, to save uh, uh, money, to install uh, toilets that don't need as much water to flush and all this kind of thing. Um, and controversially, uh, they are trying, Thames Water in particular, which is a sort of giant uh, water company, they're trying to increase their resilience by building more reservoirs um, throughout the 20th century. Uh, London has built more and more reservoirs. You can see them all around um, Heathrow and up the Lee Valley and so on. Uh, and they do a, a necessary job. But in a drought year, there is a fear that even those enormous reservoirs wouldn't be enough. So there is a hugely controversial plan now to build an absolutely enormous reservoir uh, out near Abingdon, just south of Oxford, uh, which would fill up over two or three years. And then be at, that water would be available to Londoners and to the other water companies in the in the south of England. And of course, not surprisingly, the good folk of Abingdon are terribly, terribly keen because they, they think it would be uh, an eyesore and, and all the rest of it. So there's a, 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 a big political issue there. And the other, which is not going to go away. And there are kind of clever ideas about um, how one might solve this. One idea is to bring water, additional water down from the Midlands, where they got quite a lot of it, uh, down the canals. The Oxford Canal, for instance, could be used for this. I inquired where this water would actually come from, and I was told, well, it'll come from um, the sewage treatment plant at Sutton Coldfield. So uh, Londoners may at some point in the future find themselves drinking um, purified, clarified, treated sewage from the, the West Midlands. Um, and, and people talk about... Um, the need for desalination, which actually is a, a it's a very, very expensive uh, and environmentally rather unsound solution. Uh, and the water companies in the South don't seem terribly keen on pursuing it, probably wisely. But, you know, there a lot of there's a lot of talk of things like this because we are used. We use more water than we have. Absolutely. It's a sobering point to end on. Nick, this has been so interesting. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to have enjoyed this. Mercenary River is out now. In fact, over the course of this recording, you've had delivery of, of uh, a box of, of copies of it. Yes, I've, um, got to go and, I've, got, I've got to go and open it. Absolutely. Uh, so we won't keep you much longer. But folks, go buy it. And you know the rant by now because I say it every time I'm on air. Don't go to Amazon. I mean, if you desperately need to, then go to Amazon. But in the description there is a link to the History Hack bookstore. The reason you want to buy through the History Hack bookstore is not only do you support History Hack, and support independent booksellers, you also make sure that Nick gets a cut as opposed to the practices that happen on Amazon where because they're able to sell it cheaply, Nick gets less in terms of royalties. So look, everybody benefits. So if you are able to dig into your pocket, then please do go to the History Hack bookstore. Obviously, if you aren't able to afford the standard price and Amazon is doing it at a better price, I'm sure Nick would appreciate the sales that would come from it so just the, the overarching point is go buy it but please do consider buying it from the history Hack bookstore nick it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you thank you so much for your time thank you very much for having me 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.